This is a Soul Fire production. Hi, this is Kimberly Kleiman Lee, executive coach, performance consultant, and host of the Do I Dare podcast. If you're a leader who wants to inspire, empower, and raise the leadership bar, then you have come to the right place, my friend. Here you will get access to powerful yet practical solutions that elevate your performance and dissolve roadblocks. Do you dare to lead in a way that moves the needle and scales the impact? Yeah? Then let's do it. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Do I Dare podcast. I'm Kimberly Kleiman-Lee, your host and uh, excited partner on this particular journey. Episode four is a uh, good one. It's a juicy one. It's one I'm asked about quite a bit. So we're going to explore the concept of lifelong learning. So here's the thing. You are talented until you're not. You're relevant until you're not. You're productive, efficient, a creative problem solver, a systems thinker, a robust networker, talent magnet, until you're not. So in today's episode, I want to unpack what it means to be in the not half of that sentence and how to stay as far away from the not category as possible. So let's take it from the top. You might have heard of this thing called lifelong learning. As a phrase, it gained quite a bit of traction in the human resources circles a few years ago, and it's become a bit of an industry standard, especially for those in fast-paced, global, ever-changing industries and markets. But quite frankly, in the year of 2021, I don't think anyone has the luxury of relying on or referencing only what we learned in college or in grad school or what we maybe picked up last year, learned about or read last month or even experienced just yesterday. Being a lifelong learner is a lifestyle or a work style, if you will. Lifelong learners set off this kind of aura of being voraciously curious. They're awake in the world in a way that others just are not. They're humbly vulnerable and open to what they could learn anywhere from anyone. They read, watch, listen, and engage in the world in a way that's different than others. It's definitely different from those in the not category. So if you want to stay talented, if you want to stay relevant, then let's do the work. This episode is going to help you lay a terrific foundation for how to do that. So if we think back to maybe some of the formal ways in which we were learners, let's start with high school. It's probably about as far back as some of us can think. In high school, it was all about academics and incremental social learning. So you might remember that poem, Everything I Ever Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. Well, we ride that poem, the principles in that poem, for quite a while. We become laser-focused and organized and uh, predictable in terms of our learning approach. We have freedom within a pretty tight framework. A bell rings. It pretty much tells us what we're supposed to be doing next. We get a list of expectations, a list of courses with timelines, deadlines, there's a start and a finish, et cetera, et cetera. And when it comes to learning outside of the high school environment, you pretty much don't want to. I remember posing a very simple math problem to one of my kids, and it happened to be a Saturday. And her response quite innocently was, mom, it's the weekend. I don't want to do math. So I will keep trying. She's going to be a liberal arts major like her mom. I can tell already. 
When you move on to college then, it's still about academics. But instead of incremental social learnings, like in high school, things that added on from grade school and and middle school, you get the sense of exponential social application. So it's where you learn how to learn. You learn how to think. You learn what you believe to be true about yourself and the world. But you do it with immense freedom. You engage in many and sometimes not so many social experiments and tests that are intended to prepare you for kind of the next big thing, be it job or other things after college. You have to learn to budget your time and your money. You have to learn how to have self-control and set boundaries. You qualify relationships, perhaps, in a way you hadn't needed to before. You have to take the initiative. You challenge experts. You have to learn to meet expectations with perhaps less supervision than ever before. The learning is exciting because it happens within a broader contextual experience of sorts. So you go from high school where things are extraordinarily controlled from a number of different angles, teachers, parents, principals, school board regulations, et cetera, et cetera, to college where this entire learning potential is just kind of open up. And then you get your first job perhaps out of college and you kind of go right back to a similar structure to high school. It's all about what you learn how you apply what you learn in this case. And the context in which you do it is freedom within a framework again. So you're laser focused on a task or a role or a set of goals. It's rather predictable. You have some hopefully solid expectations of you. You have freedom within a framework once again. If you're lucky, you have a heavy orientation. And if you're really lucky, you might even get some instruction. So a lot of Companies have these fresh out of college kind of two year programs where they put you in maybe four different roles or situations somewhere, either in the world or in their multidiscipline business, where you can gain so much experience and exposure that you're ready for a mid management job after those two years. It's kind of a condensed version of an MBA, if you will. In this case, your first job out of college really focuses from a social perspective on culture. So it it helps new kind of college grads, new folks in the workforce, it helps them understand how to be successful in this new environment. So this is where folks learn how to finesse what they think. Um, And they learn to tailor what they need to say about what they think or what they should say about what they think. They learn to be political in this regard. And they understand a little bit more sometimes through trial and error, sometimes through just very keen observation on how to make sure they can be influential while they're conducting the work that they were hired to do. And in this case too, sometimes the last thing you want to do is learn on your days off because you're in such a condensed learning environment on the job. And then you grow through an organization. And if you're fortunate enough to hit the upper mid-management to executive ranks, learning takes on a totally different meaning. So in this case, it's experiential. You get exposed to problems and challenges and interesting people and situations and um, ethics and uh, governmental practices and all sorts of things that, again, 
require your judgment, your assessment, perhaps your curiosity. You study best practices. You look at models and theories and philosophies. Again, you challenge your judgment. Perhaps there's some trial and error, perhaps some crowdsourcing of ideas. You need to learn how to make sense of a multifaceted situation. In this case, it's all about seeing the gray, where oftentimes you might say words like or phrases like, well, it depends. Because by the time you get to the executive ranks, the experience and the knowledge you've acquired helps you to take on challenges that are multifaceted, that are complex, maybe chaotic, maybe have time pressures or significant impacts to the company's bottom line. So the challenges have some pretty significant outcomes, if not handled carefully. You take on what's called systems thinking. It's a way of seeing overall structures and patterns and cycles and systems, rather than only seeing specific events in the system. When you're that junior employee that I talked about, um, you can see specific events and you learn to go deep and perhaps somewhat broad on that very specific event in the system. But at the executive level, you're expected to put together what you know about the structure, the pattern, the cycles, the sequence, the rhythms, and so forth into one comprehensive whole, and then make a judgment, and then decide the next step, and then determine who should be engaged. It's all about wholeness and interaction in this case. The whole is greater than the sum of the parts. The whole is what you need to study and understand. So systems thinking becomes critical competency for upper middle management or or senior executive. But once again, you're doing all of this with immense freedom, although the executives I work with will say they have the least freedom that they've ever had before because they're being watched from so many different angles. But by immense freedom, I mean, for the most part, how they approach the challenges that they face and the way in which they solve them uh, can can be um, quite personalized to their style, their, their experience, and so forth. The stakes are high, no doubt, and the solutions aren't obvious, but the approach is theirs to build. So as a recap, in high school, you're singular focused. So instead of seeing things as black or white or black and white, you see things as only black or only white. By the time you get to college, you start to really explore black and white. So I get what I think about it, and I think I'm hearing what you think about it. Let me consider some of that and figure out how to redefine my own perspective based on yours. By the time you get your junior role, things are black and white, and you're starting to learn to make decisions, assess challenges, and so forth based on a a number of different, perhaps competing points or uh, different elements of data that will lead you down a path that perhaps you didn't expect before. And then by the time you get to the executive ranks, you really learn how to navigate the gray. Some things are black and white, like integrity, ethics, governmental protocols, guidelines, that sort of thing. I totally get that. When I say navigate the gray, I mean there could be multiple outcomes, multiple possibilities, depending on the challenge that you face. So how do you become open to navigating the gray? That's where lifelong learning comes in. So there's academic learning. And again, for the most part, you're doing that high school, 
college, part of your junior role. But then you'll find that the classes, the formal academics become farther and fewer between. And you're really left to your own devices to ensure that you stay smart with the goal of becoming wise. So how do you keep that learning muscle conditioned? As an executive coach, I assess talent and grade their ability to stay relevant um, a number of different ways. And I've really come up with five that I rely on quite heavily. So I thought it might be helpful if I shared those with you. And again, would love your feedback. So feel free to message me in LinkedIn or DM me in Instagram. Or those of you know how to get me on email, feel free to do that as well. Would love your perspective. So let me explain what they are and we'll unpack each one of those and I'll throw in a few great resources for you to check out as well. So as an executive coach, I assess talent and grade their ability to stay relevant by five factors. I typically do this, especially for folks who are on some sort of succession plan um, or they're being considered for a significant role. Uh, They perhaps might be um, new to a company. They're an unknown talent, if you will. And there are certain things that um, that they want to make sure this new candidate is kind of bringing in. So that's oftentimes when I'll get engaged. So I've come just over the years to understand and be able to define this and, and see this in a number of different ways. So these five factors are, um, are simple, but not easy. Um, and I thought it might be valuable if I shared those with you today. So the first is vulnerable. Um, do they demonstrate healthy vulnerability? I'll talk about that in a second. Uh, Network. Do they have one? Who's in it? And are they leveraging it? Third one. Are they an expert in their field? And how would I know? Fourth. Are they coach-like in most of their interactions? And is that how people regard them? And fifth is this concept called synchrony that I actually learned from Daniel Pink. And we'll talk about that one when we get to that fifth and final part. But those are the five components that if I can see or if they can demonstrate competence in those areas, I think they have a a really, really strong learning muscle um, and can obviously show evidence of it and the company and those around them will benefit from it. So let's take it from the top. Let's start with vulnerability. Vulnerability is the key to learning because you're saying things like, I don't know, teach me. I've never thought of it that way. I want to try that next time. I know what you're saying. I just need to get myself in that situation to experience it firsthand. You can balance humble openness with confident credibility. Humble openness is the how you approach work. And that confident credibility is the what you're bringing to it. It's the taking your learnings and being able to then apply it with confidence because they're tested, they're proven, um, they're experienced. When I talk about vulnerability, my clients sometimes go to the dark side of what they think it means. So they think that it means showing a wart or a weakness or an inability, showing what they're not good at. Maybe some think that it means crying at work. That's not at all what we reference when we talk about vulnerability. Um, some people, if I look at just the pure definition, it's the um, the state of being exposed to the possibility of being attacked or harmed, either physically or emotionally. I guess you could drill down to that if you choose to look at vulnerability in that very basic definition. But 
I think Brene Brown is one of the leading experts on this whole topic of vulnerability. She's dedicated her life's work to it. And with regard to that, she says a couple of really incredible things. Um, she thinks vulnerability is at the heart of the human experience. And I could not agree more. It's really what makes people connect when they see each other uh, across the aisle and can really understand that we're kind of all in this together. I think it's just terrific. She defines it as an uncertainty, risk, or emotional exposure, kind of that unstable feeling we get when we step out of our comfort zone and do something that forces us to loosen control. That word control is really key, especially when I work with executives. Sometimes they think, gosh, if I'm vulnerable, I will lose control. I will not have the command and control that I think I need to do my job. I will not have the influence over people that I will need to do my job. And actually, healthy demonstrations of vulnerability can be just the opposite. It actually gives you more power, personal power, as opposed to position power. So when people talk about things like, I want to have more control over people, it's usually demonstrated through position power. Your title, your parking spot, the fact that you have mahogany wood around you in your office, big leather chair, those are all signs of position power. Personal power is power with other people. It's the power that you can exude because of who you are and how you do what you do. That's where vulnerability plays a role. Again, some really great work by her in her book called Daring Greatly. Highly, highly recommend you uh, download that one for a great read. I have almost all of my um, executive clients read that one first off because I find that that might be the first lesson um, that they could learn to get them further faster, so to speak. And again, it's not time that will get you the level of vulnerability you need. It's actually courage that will do that. And that sometimes is a, a harder place to play. So if you think about this concept of vulnerability, the reason it plays such a huge role in uh, lifelong learning is, again, you're saying what you are not, who you are not. You're saying what you do not know. Um, you are asking for help. You are opening yourself up to experiences or to experiencing situations in life in a way that perhaps isn't natural for you. Isn't, it goes against how you understood something to work. But the fact that you're open to it and willing to be wrong is what makes you vulnerable. That's why I always start with that as my first assessor. The second one is on networking. Now, this is, again, another overused corporate phrase, if you will, but let's just unpack that a little bit and, and maybe think about it in a new or different way. What I want to know here is, do they have one? Who's in it? And do they leverage it? So let's just break that down. First, do they have one? I'm not talking about connection counts in LinkedIn. I have 4,000 members. I have 20 members, kind of like how my kids talk about social media. Mom, I'm friends with 756 people. And then I have to go into my soapbox about, honey, those really aren't friends. They're just people who clicked follow or accept or whatever. So in this case, I'm not talking about volume. I'm actually talking about quality connections here. So they might be found in your LinkedIn profile, but uh, again, this is a, a little bit different of a, a relationship. I'm talking about a robust group of humans who you could text, call, or write when needed. This is a group you could give to and take from. 
and we'll explore what I mean by that in, in just a little bit. Second part of, of networking is who's in it. And this is where it gets really interesting, especially at the executive level. Most of those folks that I work with uh, have really strong in-function or in-company networks. So they know everybody in finance. They know a lot of engineers. Uh, they have a strong HR group that they can lean on or bounce ideas off of. That's in-function. In-company would be, I'm really close with my team members. I'm really close with the colleagues in my division. I'm really close with the folks who uh, work in the same value chain that I do and so forth. These should be relatively easy networks for you to build, kind of the lazy man, lazy woman's network, if you will, because you're in their path every day. You simply have to make sure you form healthy relationships with them. By the time you get to the mid-management or executive level, your network should be quite strategic. And what I mean by that is uh, think about what you need, who you need in your network, and go seek them out as opposed to just accepting and building from folks who are directly in your, um, in your circle, if you will. Again, those are important, but by the time you get to the executive ranks, you need to think a little bit more strategically about who you have in your path. So let's talk a little bit more about that. So when I work with executives, I use a tool in my Connected Human series called PEEPS, P-E-E-P-S. And if you guys want the tool, you're more than welcome to, to go to KimberlyKleimanLee.com forward slash connect to uh, download it. I'll also put that link in my show notes for those of you who um, don't have a pen and paper handy. So uh, PEEPS is just a very cheeky acronym that stands for People to Enrich Every Perspective. It's one of the biggest challenges I see senior leaders having. So you see, the higher you go, the less feedback you get, the less people are willing to tell you the unvarnished truth, and the less people want to challenge your point of view. So unless you've been able to demonstrate the first item on my list, vulnerability, people will see you as a threat to them or their future. We probably have enough example of that in uh, Washington. So if you don't demonstrate genuine vulnerability, you may find that people tell you what you want to hear. Um, they uh, perform success theater every time they're giving you their monthly operating update. Or they simply work around you as opposed to with you. You become a managed leader. It's the absolute worst fate for a leader. A managed leader. You are managed. You are handled. Because to do anything more than that would be too messy, too scary, too risky uh, for those in your path. And I can tell you exactly how that story ends. It's not a place you want to be. And that's why lifelong learning becomes so critical to your story. And having a robust network is going to help you guard against that. So vulnerability is first on my list because it makes you open, creates a foundation for what's to come. So back to peeps. You'll see this in the worksheet should you choose to download it. But in essence, we're going to complete kind of a graphic, if you will, that will help you reflect on and list the scope you have in the context for which you lead. So for example, if you are a, a global engineering customer-facing executive, um, I want to know a little bit more about you. Are you um, a Gen Xer? Are you married? Do you live in London? Um, have you only ever lived in London? Do you have children? Do you work in finance? Have you only ever worked in finance? And so forth. 
So just list out a few characteristics or a few things that you're known for or a few history points. And then we'll start to figure out, okay, based on that, what are you facing in your job? What challenges do you have? Um, And let's look at that all across the board. Not only highly technical, but let's look at your people, your processes, your tools, your technology, um, your risks, your competitors. Let's look across the board on where you might have some gaps between who you are, what you know, and who you need and what you need to know. So given who you are and what you need to understand about your work, who might you need in your network to challenge your perspectives? So for example, if you're leading an organization and you happen to share with me that you have an inability to keep females on your direct staff or attract females to uh, serve on your executive board, I will probably ask you about your network. Do you have females in your network? Not just names that have clicked accept or follow, but folks that you can have a conversation with, that you call from time to time, that you um, exchange best practices with and so forth, who happen to also have the expertise that you value and need, um, the perspectives that align with your corporate culture, et cetera, et cetera. Sounds simple, right? Not always. So if your current role requires you to lead a business, perhaps um, the sector of your business is with um, working with governments. Do you have any government officials in your network, people who can help you navigate that very specific culture? If you aren't really taking care of yourself, you're not very happy, do you have anybody in your network who is really healthy? Maybe they actually work in um, the health field. Maybe they're a nutritionist or a dietitian or a trainer, personal trainer. If you're a Gen Xer, do you have any millennials in your network? I'm a huge fan of reverse mentoring. What do they have, they meaning folks who are younger, more junior than you, that you need to know and understand? And how do you make them your coach, make them your mentor? If your strength is in engineering and you're not comfortable with finance, check your network. Who do you have that can help you there? You get the idea. I often have clients draft out who they are, the challenges that they face, and then the network they have to aid them. The gaps or the blanks become the work. So I think every executive should have an artist, a politician, a religious leader, a journalist or writer, a chef, a musician, an athlete, a teacher, a real estate agent, someone from a different country or culture than themselves, and a few people maybe from their toughest competitor. I could go on and on and on about the list. It really just depends on who you are and what you need. But most folks don't have a broad network like that. Most folks stay singular focused because it's just easier to hang with those who are already in your path. This will take effort and this requires you to put yourself in situations and environments um, where a lot of these folks uh, hang out. And we can talk about how to do that in another segment in just a little bit. The third part of networking is do you leverage it? A network needs to be nurtured rather consistently, I hate to say it. So again, is this something you can give to and take from rhythmically over time? And when I say it needs to be nurtured rather consistently, can you dedicate 30 minutes to building, nurturing, maintaining your uh, network? Can you send out notes? Can you connect people? Can you ask questions? Can you offer advice? 
can you um, read an article and respond to it in social media? What do you do to keep your network top of mind and constantly groom it? Can you book that time on your calendar to really make sure you make space for creating and maintaining a healthy network? For example, I get a lot of recruiter calls. And although I'm not necessarily interested um, in uh, a new position, I will definitely flip those inquiries to individuals in my network who might be able to benefit from at least a conversation. If I have a client with a significant gap or if they are um, understaffed, I'll do the same for them. Connecting people to opportunities is a terrific way to nurture your network. So yesterday, I took seven minutes to forward a job description I got from a recruiter to 22 people in my network. Three, um, uh, many responded back, but three actually responded back saying that they were actually in the market for a new role and appreciated the thought. Now, of course, I'm not doing it to get something in return. But what I do get by default is this brand of matching talented people to big opportunities. And this robust uh, network will help you draw in talent when you need it as well. So another tool in my Connected Human series is called the Seek to Solve. I use this one probably the most with clients, especially those who are seeking a career change, their next role, or maybe they just have a significant problem to solve and they find themselves to be a bit stuck. Again, if you have interest, just go to uh, KimberlyKleimanLee.com forward slash connect and you'll gain access to that tool for free, of course. So in essence, it's super simple. I do this with a stack of post-it notes and a big white wall. You can certainly work on the worksheet or a good cup of coffee, a pencil and a white sheet of paper in a corner of Starbucks works really well too. Um, In essence, you start by articulating your need or your desire. So for example, I would like to secure an FP&A role um, at a Fortune 50 company within 12 months, but you have no idea where to begin that. You think it's time to leave your company, maybe look for another company. You have an interest in a certain industry or maybe a certain part of the country, part of the world. So you have this context, but you're just a little stuck in terms of how do I actually start with that? And I usually say you start where you're standing and then you build it out. So this seek to solve tool that you would find when you uh, go to my website is super simple. And the goal is to start small and start now. So in this case, you start by articulating your need or desire. And then you think of two people who might be able to get you pointed in the right direction. So who in your immediate circle could you start to have a conversation with about what you want, what you need, um, and how they might recommend you go about solving for that? So you have a conversation, you schedule a conversation with those two people. And at the end of each conversation you have, you always ask them to connect you or introduce you to two more individuals who could help you get further on your journey. And before you know it, you've created this two by two web or network, if you will, all designed to help you navigate this challenge or ambition that you have. You continue this process until you've built up a network of humans, all helping you work through the the challenge um, and get to a solution. Sometimes you might interview a person and you consider that to be less than helpful. So fine, that journey ends, but then you continue your journey in a different part of your web and you just navigate all of those great people put in your path until you come up with an answer that means something to you. 
And I usually say if you're looking for a, a new job, a new career, especially if it's one outside of your current company or industry, you need to make that a J-O-B. So you need to dedicate anywhere from two to five hours a week on that, working your network, researching, reading, talking to people, making connections, um, investigating um, uh, annual reports. Again, things that will help you understand a little bit more about the opportunities that are out there. So if you think about, again, how do you leverage your network? You can do that in a number of different ways, not only to solve problems or challenges, as I just mentioned before, but also to gain insights. So insights like, um, I have this opening on my staff. I really need to fill it with a talented person, but I want them to have this kind of background, this level of experience. Who can I tap into in my network that either is that person or knows that person? And then again, you go about the process of having these great dynamics. The more robust your network, the easier and faster you're able to, to come to a conclusion on those challenges. So again, give it a try. Check out my uh, tool again, KimberlyKleimanLee.com forward slash connect if this stuff is of interest to you. And again, you can drop me a DM in either LinkedIn or Instagram. Happy to, to walk you through it or, or help you through it as you see fit. So next one, become an expert in your field. To become a lifelong learner, I will know that this is of interest to them because they truly are an expert in their field. Now, field is a pretty broad term. So what I mean there is you can go deep and broad in the thing you are known for. What do people call upon you to do? What are you usually hired to do? Um, what, where might I want to save a seat for you? And what kind of challenge, what kind of industry, what kind of market, what kind of problem, and so forth. So for the career you have or the role you're in, are you considered the expert? Now, of course, there's a difference between being the expert in your field and being new to a role. What I'm talking about here is deep and broad expertise in a subject matter that draws people to you. Now, in the business world, you could be an expert in artificial intelligence or 3D printing. You might have um, deep experience in an engineering application in the aerospace industry, for example. Uh, you might have transformed an operation through your expertise in Six Sigma or lean manufacturing. When I work with clients and they tell me their expertise, the next question I always ask is, how would I know you were the expert? If silence is the thing that follows, that's where we begin to work. We look at the gaps and we would build a plan together. So, so far I've shared with you three of the ways I can tell if the executive client I'm working with is a lifelong learner. Do they demonstrate healthy vulnerability? Do they nurture and build and maintain a really robust, powerful network of humans? Are they considered an expert in their field? This all takes consistent work, self-awareness, and certainly dedication of time and energy. Less than you think. Once you gain momentum, you'll see that it, it ends up taking on a life of its own, but it definitely will take some work in the beginning if this, again, is a, a bit new for you to, to think in this way. Now, sometimes people will say, especially when I'm talking about networks and are you an expert in your field and that sort of thing, folks' egos get a little out of sorts. They're not quite sure how to make sense of themselves in that. They feel like doing this is inauthentic or doesn't feel genuine or it's boastful. If that's the way you're approaching it, well, of course, it's going to come across that way. I'm not recommending that. What I recommend is that you truly, in the most humble of ways possible, think about the humans around you, your network, and the expertise you're offering out there, the content, 
in a rich, valuable way. You're giving and you're taking. So it's a place of abundance. It's not a place of scarcity at all. So just reframe uh, the way you think about that and put yourself out there. I dare you. Okay, number four, coach-like. This one might be um, a bit of a surprise to you. Almost all of my executive coaching engagements start with an executive 360. So just a little bit about my process for some context, and then we'll talk about coaching here. When I coach an executive client, it's typically because they are a high performer. They're doing really well, but they might be stuck in a couple areas. They might be considered on succession um, for their company, uh, meaning they're, they're being considered for a role of greater influence. And in those situations, um, I like to get a really good foundational understanding of who they are uh, and what they're all about. So before I meet with them, I rarely read their LinkedIn, Google them, all of those sorts of things. Uh, I would, instead, I'd want to really get a first impression fresh, and then I will go out and do all of that uh, research. Once I'm done with that and I have a little bit better of an understanding of what I see versus what I um, don't see or what they're saying is a gap in how they want to be, I might recommend a few um, evaluative instruments or assessment instruments for them. I happen to use a few that I think are really good and they happen to be my favorites. There, there are dozens that you can use. Again, if you have interest, just DM me and I'll throw you a, a few examples. Um, but I start with a self-assessment. So I use Hogan. In this case, they have a suite of three tools that I tend to go to the most um, where the leader can assess themselves based on how they are in a typical day, how they are when they're busy, stressed, tired, or bored, and then what they value, what motivates them, what just gets them jumping out of bed in the morning and uh, excited to go to work. So that's the first thing they do is a self-assessment. The second thing um, they do is a team assessment. And it's to help me understand the dynamic of their team. How healthy is their interaction? How productive are their efforts? And how much impact are they uh, making with the results they produce? So that's the second assessment I do. Now, they are part of the team as they're completing this assessment. But of course, depending on the results, I can only assume that their leadership would play a bit of a factor uh, in terms of um, how healthy they actually are. And then the last tool that I use the most often is a custom 360. In essence, it's um, a series of interviews. So in my case, how I approach it is I typically do 25 to 30 interviews, individual interviews from individuals who represent all facets of this leader's life. I have very specific questions that I unpack with them over 30 minutes. So I interview each individual for 30 minutes and I take all of that qualitative data, put it into a comprehensive report. I mix in the self-assessment with the team uh, results, and that gives me um, a pretty good picture of that particular leader. And then uh, he or she and I will spend hours pouring over that data where they will then synthesize that, boil it down to maybe three to five things they really want to focus on, and then the coaching begins. What's interesting about that is I, of course, will ask a series of questions um, about the data that they see and their thoughts about it, their responses, what surprised them, what didn't surprise them, what should have been in that wasn't. Um, they'll give me more context, et cetera, et cetera. So again, the dialogue goes on for hours. I have even just a couple of years ago started to include family members in my interviews. I uh, truly believe in the whole human approach to this kind of work. And uh, there's nothing like interviewing 
a really rebellious teenager to give you a good perspective on your talent um, or a significant other who has nothing but uh, well wishes for your future. It's just a, a really great, great way to round out the formula. So in this case, I ask a number of questions, as I mentioned, but I'm most curious about if the data represents how they want to be known well after they're gone from that role or that company or what have you. So is this the perception they want to leave people with? And if it's not, what might be missing? What would you hope they would say? What would you hope to read if we were to redo this assessment in, let's say, five years from now, 10 years from now? And more often than not, the word coach comes up, sometimes by my prodding, sometimes by their disappointment that it didn't show up uh, more uh, in the data that I offered them. So this concept of being a coach to others, being a person that really helped build others into the careers um, that, they, that they currently have or they enjoy. Uh, being a builder of skills, being a sharer of experience and knowledge. That's oftentimes what senior leaders will want to leave in terms of their legacy. And I just love that. Some folks don't even think it could be a part of their legacy. They just don't think of themselves in that way. And senior leaders, you guys all know this, right? The higher you go in the organization, the less it's about the technical aspects of the work and the more it's about the people aspects of the work. So with regard to that, then you can't help but think that coaching has to be a significant part of that. The reason I have coaching as a part of the lifelong uh, learning uh, gauge for me is because you have to be a lifelong learner and have those characteristics in order to be a great coach. Now, full disclosure, I really think uh, asking managers or leaders to be coaches is an awfully tall order. Perhaps it's because I do this now for a living, and it's how I spend my time professionally. All I simply ask is they be coach-like in most of their interactions with others, being coach-like versus being a coach. To be a true coach takes quite a bit of time and energy and, quite frankly, technical skill. So don't worry about being a coach. Just think about how you can be more coach-like with your interactions with others. It takes the pressure off. And it sets a different headset for everybody. So I get curious about, are you coach-like in most of the interactions you have uh, during the day, during the week, and so forth? It doesn't require much technical skill, although some. It does require, though, a certain temperament or curiosity about others. If you're coach-like, I'll hear you ask more questions than give directions. I'll notice that you listen more than you talk. I'll see you guide. You'll offer feedback. You'll catch someone doing something really well. Or you'll course correct while ensuring a lesson is learned. Instead of a formal, sit-down, well-planned-out coaching session, if you will, instead you, you coach at the elbow. You coach in the moment when the opportunity is right in front of you. You'll coach as you're coming out of a meeting and walking down a hallway. That's what being coach-like means to me. It takes an open, curious person to be coach-like. In this case, you're studying humans, and you're really trying to figure out how to help them be the best ver versions of themselves on their terms. They make the journey less about themselves and more about scaling leadership 
to all levels of the organization. That's what senior leaders should be doing, scaling leadership to all levels of the organization. There's a great book that I uh, recommend to all of my clients called Scaling Leadership. Highly recommend it. I'll put a link to it in my show notes for those of you who are up for another read. And last, synchrony. So this one might be a little obscure for some of you. I highly recommend Daniel Pink's book. I think it's called A Whole Mind, um, How Right Brainers Will uh, Run the World. I think that's it. Again, I'll put a link to my uh, to the book in my show notes. I think lifelong learners create a mastery of this thing that Daniel Pink calls synchrony. I read his uh, book and established a big old professional crush instantly on Daniel Pink because this guy gets it. He totally knows that a leader's ability to take seemingly unrelated concepts, experiences, histories, objects, ingredients, and so forth can be, with some thoughts, skillfully assembled to solve some really tough problems. I think an artist in this case should be at the table of every big problem the world has because they see the world this way. They can take things that you wouldn't think could go together, parts that you wouldn't think would fit together, and put it together to be something amazing for the world. And that's what synchrony is all about. So it's kind of the fruit of a lifelong learner's labor, if you will. So as you read and study and observe and dialogue, you naturally create dots and then you connect those dots. It will be your superpower as a leader, one that is sure to keep your brand fresh and relevant. So now, of course, you're going to ask, well, how do I get this concept of synchrony? How do I collect dots and then connect them as I apply them to the problems I face or the challenges on my desk or the uh, uh, the products that I have yet to invent or the talent I have yet to attract? Well, you have to do some work. So let's start to brainstorm some ideas here. And, and uh, again, I'll put more, um, more details and more resources for you in my show notes. All of the things I've spoken about already could certainly add to the superpower of synchrony. My network, this concept of being open and vulnerable, um, becoming an expert in my field, making sure I put my great content out there. All of those things could certainly add to it. But there are other things you could do to put yourself in the path of incredible learning. So, for example, this is my number one go-to. I used to subscribe to this app called Texture uh, back in the day, a few years ago. Uh, it was a curated library for, gosh, I think they had over 250 magazines, popular magazines you'd get on any newsstand. I think I paid about 15 US dollars every month, and I had access to all this stuff, cover to cover, unlimited, loved it. I had access to uh, Fortune Magazine, Entrepreneur, Fast Company, as well as things like Oprah, Architectural Digest, Popular Mechanics, New Yorker Magazine, Bon Appetit, um, what were other ones that I read, Backpacker, Traveler, uh, the list was exceptional. Uh, and I was so enamored with the app that I actually asked my team to subscribe as well, um, because I just think that kind of exposure is what we needed for the kind of work that we did. So the work that we did was we assembled um, and curated executive experiences um, with, um, with learning uh, at the core. And we did that all over the globe because our employees, our executives were all over the globe. 
but we didn't do it with PowerPoint. That was my commitment. I wanted to offer experiences that were based on dialogue and um, application and exposure to things that were new, um, listening to people who they had not crossed paths with before. That was really important to me from an adult learning perspective. So we put the PowerPoint away and opened the pages of, of texture and found all of our answers. It was exceptional. So with the click of a button, I could forward articles to anybody who would benefit from the content that I was uh, reading to help people start to think about learning in a new and different way. The world already has the lessons. We just need to be open to take them. So in this case, that one tool helped me build dozens of experiences for the executives at General Electric. From those pages, I could find unusual venues in uh, just about any country by looking at some of the travel magazines. And that's where I hosted my classrooms. Um, I could read about leading experts with really unique ways to solve problems. And those would be the teachers in my classroom. I would um, read about energizing experiences that I could put in the path of these executives that would help them learn the lesson they needed to learn without it being a PowerPoint or a three-inch paper binder. And of course, thought leaders were on every other page of just about every magazine, but I didn't want them to be only in their industry. I think the best learning comes when you listen to different folks who have solved problems or come across challenges, but in their field. So you understand how they approached it and were able to take away and then hopefully apply it later. So those experiences um, and my exposure to that content allowed me to offer these amazing courses to um, our executives. So as an example, I took a group to Selma uh, to study diversity and inclusion, but through the eyes of the civil rights movement, we had speakers who happened to be there and crossed the bridge um, during that historic event in history. We took them to historic sites. One of the one that gave me the most chills was where Rosa Parks had shared her story initially. We went to a small church that Martin Luther King presided at. Another group was interested in solar energy. And through one of the articles that I read, um, I came to understand that Larry Hagman, yes, that Larry Hagman, the actor from Dallas and I Dream of Genie way back when, actually owned the largest residential solar panel system in the United States at least uh, United States, probably the globe back then. So he actually used his solar farm to pay the electrical bills of community members who uh, could not. So I wanted to meet him. I had a group who happened to be studying solar energy. They were looking for some creative ways to think about their product. And I thought, this guy has something to think about, something to share. And his, uh, his results and his data was pretty extraordinary. I thought he might be somebody to put in their path. Different article I read was Dr. Devi Shetty from Bangalore, who was a, a cardiologist. He had a daunting task of trying to figure out how to offer heart surgery to his impoverished community uh, in a way that they could afford it. So he figured out how to offer $800 heart surgery. Now, of course, when I shared that with, uh, at the time I worked for GE Healthcare, I shared that with uh, my GM of cardiology. And he said, Kimberly, who would want to pay for an $800 heart surgery? Point taken. From the eyes of a U.S. Uh, executive, right? A U.S.-based corporate executive. Now, when you're in need of heart surgery, can you get the same quality care 
at a cheaper price point? Or could that price point uh, be possible because some of those dollars were subsidized in other ways? That's what this doctor had figured out. So 40% of his patients paid the premium price and they subsidized the treatment for his poorer patients. And he created a business model that just elevated his hospital status. It was an exceptional piece. Another great uh, example of how I pulled in something, again, that I just got exposed to. I learned about the Broadway play Spider-Man, which some of you might remember when this was on Broadway. It had a very short run for some very specific reasons. This was several years ago. It was the first Broadway play to be shut down uh, due to their safety risks. So as you can imagine, the nature of the show, Spider-Man, they had men jumping from all corners, all different parts of the theater, balconies onto stage and so forth. And with that came quite a few injuries to the point where one person actually broke their back. And it was considered such a risk that they closed the show down uh, right in the middle of its run. Well, you can only imagine, like any of us, when we're faced to stop something that people had invested a lot in, uh, folks will not be happy. So someone in my network happened to know the director and I asked him if he'd be willing to uh, have the director come in and, and talk to my class. How did he deal with this crisis? How did he solve the problems uh, in a way that satisfied his investors? How did he handle low team morale? Um, how did he find new investors? Because some dropped. Uh, and how did he handle a very disappointed client group and make sure that he had a quality product in the end? It was a fascinating way to think about um, products and services and industries, but not in one that my group uh, played in. And of course, at the end, everybody got a ticket to see the play. And just as a little bit of an extra bonus, the actors graciously agreed to stay after the performance so that my class could interview them one-on-one -on -one and get their perspectives on what happened and their role in helping this director solve that problem. So Texture, the app, sold their app to Apple, and it's now called News Plus. So you can still subscribe through Apple. It's even yeah, more, uh, it has even more resources available. I think they added a whole newspaper line. I still get my newspapers, paper copy. I like to hang on to my newspapers. Um, but feel free to check that out, you guys. Again, it's uh, called News Plus. I'll put it in the show notes for you as well. Another just brilliant resource. So besides reading, some of you are much more experiential than that. So the last resource I'm going to recommend to you is that of uh, getting exposure to conferences. And when I say conferences, fill in the blank. It could be webinars. It could be uh, symposiums, seminars, whole bunch of different words for this. But what I mean is um, a scheduled meeting of the minds somewhere in the world or online where you can get exposed to new content and uh, experts who understand that content in a deep and thoughtful way. So you're probably thinking, well, gosh, I attend a lot of conferences. My industry hosts this XYZ every year in Chicago, and I go with my whole team, and I get to reminisce with buddies that I've met over the years, et cetera, et cetera. I get that. That's fine. That's great. I, I'm sure it helps you from a number of perspectives uh, in your industry, in your business. But I'm not talking about those kind of conferences. Uh, those things are kind of the, the table stakes. Those are the tickets to play. And oftentimes you go to conferences like that more for business opportunities than you are for uh, your own personal um, investment or, or learning. There's probably some of that too, but it might not be the primary reason you go. 
What I want you to seek out are some conferences, webinars, seminars, symposiums, et cetera, that really help you understand the world in a different way. Helps you stretch your brain, stretch your heart in a way that perhaps you might not have thought of. We don't want you to reinforce what you already know. We want you to challenge what you know uh, so that, again, it, you can keep that, that muscle of openness and, um, and curiosity uh, well-toned. So in this case, can you find a conference that offers content that you're unfamiliar with? Perhaps a new perspective. Perhaps the attendee list aren't folks that you would typically work with or get exposure to. I thought it might be helpful for me to just share a few of my favorites. And again, I'll put some links to these um, uh, in the show notes. Some of these have taken on a different form because of COVID. I am almost positive they will come back into their into a new renewed or reinvented uh, format. But again, the content is just so phenomenal. I'd highly recommend you you check these out and more. So one of my favorite ones is called C2MTL. So it it's uh, when creativity meets commerce, and it happens to be held in Montreal. So C2MTL is the uh, name of the conference. I attended, ironically, their very first year and thought it was exceptional. The most creative, innovative uh, conference I had been to uh, to date. Uh, they had every, Cirque du Soleil was the, the uh, master of ceremonies. They had on any given stage, you could get a fashion designer, a furniture maker, a molecular biologist. They had an airplane pilot. They had a fertility doctor. So their goal was to expose you to as many unique and different individuals as possible so that you could pick and choose what would make the most sense for your story make some additional connections, learn some new things, and again, start to stretch your brain in a way that, that wraps around your problems um, in, in a fresh and, and new, with a fresh and new understanding. So that was my big takeaway. Again, you can read all the detail on their website to get the, the actual one. I'm not paid by any of these folks to promote their stuff. Um, I just happen to really like their product. So that's, that's one. And I think Fast Company, um, I'm a huge fan of their magazine, is uh, one of their main uh, sponsors. So again, check them out. They have just incredible options, um, and uh, it's not the it's not the typical conference. And if you are an introvert, this might be a really good one for you because you are right in the middle of the action and you don't have time to think about being nervous about uh, approaching people and meeting people and so forth. They also, I will say, were the first to really leverage technology in a way I thought was clever and helpful. So again, if um, technology is something that you're into and you just want to study how a very different industry connects humans through technology, it might be an, an interesting attend for that, that reason. Um, a few others, Wisdom 2.0, really great, very unique, uh, very different thought leaders, people, again, I wouldn't meet in my typical day-to-day uh, exposure. Check them out. South by Southwest, you guys probably know that one. Fast Company offers their own conferences. I think they actually have several now. Uh, the one I went to was called Innovation Uncensored. Um, TED Talks, local or the big one, if you can get a ticket, um, are always great. Uh, they have so many uh, varied speakers on so many different topics. But what I love is the creativity that these folks, again, are demonstrating. This, again, is a way to build up the synchrony muscle. Take as many um, opportunities as you can to 
to throw your net wide with the hopes of bringing things back that that will help you. Um, I spoke at a uh, BIF conference, uh, another one that I really enjoyed. Um, Business Innovation Factory is the name of the conference and um, loved it. Just exposed to so many different folks. I'll tell you a couple stories on on uh, that one in, in just a second. World Economic Forum, TechCrunch, uh, another favorite of mine is called Work Human. Um, some people think that that's only an HR conference. It's actually not. It's um, the study of humans at work and how that looks now, how it might look in the future, uh, what leaders might need to get themselves exposed to. Um, not only might you consider attending, you might consider speaking at it as well. So those are a few of my favorites. A couple stories just to give you a sense, of, again, about how this concept of synchrony can come full circle. I attended a conference, I think it was around maybe 2010, so going back about 10, 11 years ago. It was called 99U by Behance. Scott Belsky was the brainchild behind uh, the conference and Behance and a, a number of other uh, startup companies. I think 99U still exists, maybe in a different form, but again, I'll put a link to it in my show notes. Um, it was a scrappy, cool kind of conference. It was held in a university theater, kind of small, cozy. Um, I heard about it from somebody in my network. They said the speakers were innovative, disruptive, from all different walks of life. Of course, that was singing my song. So I, I just had to check it out. So I'm sitting in the uh, theater and a guy, young guy walks across the stage, jeans, uh, untucked button-down shirt, totally casual. Um, started talking about how he crashed on his uh, friend's floor when he was in college or just outside of college. And they blew up an air mattress. And that's where he hung out for a while, kind of the, the, his equivalent to couch surfing, I suppose. Told the story about how he started this company a couple of years ago. He really thinks it has merit. He thinks it's going to take off. They just hit about 10,000 people. So, of course, as he's unfolding this story, I'm talking to the two gals on either side of me thinking, would you would you just sign up to go sleep on somebody's couch like random like that? And of course, all being women, we we had a, a little bit of a pause there. So we had a good chuckle. We exchanged some stories about that. It turns out that the gal to my left was uh, one of the founding team members of Shopify. The gal on my right was the inventor of Suguru. If you haven't heard of that one, amazing product. It holds just about anything that you can think of together. Think of um, of uh, crazy glue on steroids. That's what Suguru is. And Shopify, I bet you guys have all heard of. So they were innovators in their own right. Therefore, in their case, inspiration. And we we're trying to get some inspiration off this young kid on the, on the uh, stage talking about couch surfing. Well, that kid ended up being Brian uh, Chesky from Airbnb, who was explaining how he had to rename his his uh, company from Airbed and Breakfast to Airbnb because he got some feedback that it was too long to type in the um, the search bar, and the rest is history. So uh, that one got me exposed to some young thinkers uh, really at the early ends of their success, and what a great way to um, to view uh, the future, right? So in other conferences, I'd cross paths with programmers from Angry Birds or the lead uh, of the Starbucks military member work program or the director of Khan Academy, or I'd listen to a medical student who studied his own brain cancer to try to find a cure. Um, I met a, one of my favorite stories. I met a 16 year old girl and her mom. She was a speaker at a conference that I spoke at and she created a foundation all on her own that ensured that 
girls her age had access to feminine hygiene products um, because their culture, their, their, from their country, mostly African countries, did not believe that they needed to be provided them. So she decided that that was wrong and she invented a uh, game, an online game that you could play. And the money that she made from that game is what she donated to the cause. Again, brilliant, brilliant girl, great um, motivations and just such a great way to think about uh, the world at such a young age. So in those cases, again, uh, Texture or now Apple uh, News Plus, attending conferences, all great. I wouldn't uh, be doing you a service if I didn't say that you need to read things other than the short and sweet stuff, right? Hearing a one-hour lecture or uh, an article are great, but see if you can throw yourself into a book here or there. I'm a pretty voracious reader, so full disclosure, probably about a book every other week, mostly business books because of the nature of the work I do, mostly on innovation and disruption, brain science uh, as well, again, because of the work I do. But on occasion, I love to dive into a thick, juicy novel of fiction. I think books of fiction are one of the best ways to activate the creative part of your brain. It forces you to imagine the people, their circumstances, kind of all of the imagery that surrounds that story. Such a great way to just put the other stuff on pause and really pour yourself into somebody else's reality or fiction in this case. I love a good book. One that you can't put down, one that you think about for days after, one that you grapple with, one that you disagree with. Love those kinds of books. I'll put a few of my favorites in the show notes, of course. I'm always being asked what I read. So in the spirit of doing that, I'm going to do something a little different with my Instagram. I'm launching Well-Read Wednesdays on my Instagram account. So feel free to, uh, to hit it up for those of you who are always looking for a good read. Uh, follow me there. Catch my recommendations again each Wednesday, Well-Read Wednesday. Well-Read is one sign of a lifelong learner. You can DM me and share some of your favorites with me as well. If I select one of your favorites for my one of my well-read uh, Wednesdays, say that 10 times fast, uh, book review, I will send you a free copy of one of my favorite books in exchange. So see, it pays to have a robust network. So being open and curious has evolved the way I see and experience the world around me. It's as simple as that. That's what being a lifelong learner is all about. I want you to be talented. I want you to be sought after. I want you to be considered an expert in your field and uh, networked and coach-like. I want people to say of you, gosh, if you have a tough problem to solve, you want, fill in the blank, Joe to be at the table. You want Sue right there with you. You want to make sure that Carlos has a voice in that. What a huge compliment that would be. And they'd be calling on you because you're talented. They'd be calling on you because you're relevant. They'd be calling on you because you're well-experienced, well-read, and well-applied. So for more details on the resources I mentioned in today's podcast, please check out my show notes. I'd love for you to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast to keep up to date on the latest about leadership and learning. And I can't wait to hear about the progress you make in all things that you dare to do this week. Until next time. Bye for now.